Um, tomorrow is never guaranteed. We're never guaranteed to see tomorrow here on earth. And so while it's today, we should take every moment to praise God that we're here and we're here together and we're here in relative peace and safety and that we can spend a moment of our time lifting up praise to God, encouraging one another. And as we see the day drawing near, just spurring each other along as we grow closer and closer to the Lord. And, uh, you know, today we are one day closer to the Lord's return. I mean, hey, we're almost there, right? Soon. I mean, he said soon. And so today we are sooner than yesterday to Christ's return. And so we long for that. In the meantime, what are we to do? What are we to do with ourselves? Well, um, a good way to spend our time is to read the Bible. Amen? This is God's Word that He has given to us through His special revelation that we might not be confused about who God is or what He expects or uh, what He has done for us. But truth be told, anybody who has seriously tried to read through this book might feel overwhelmed. Anybody feel overwhelmed with this book, especially as a young believer, as you're first starting out and you're just like, well, where do I start? I don't know where to go. What's with all these books and chapters and verses? And, and why does it seem to like shift from, from poetry to historical narrative to theology to church uh, philosophy to, to revelation to future prophecy? There's just a lot to this book. It's, it's both simple and as deep and complex as anything else that you will find, as deep and complex as God himself. And you will spend a lifetime studying this book and never quite really get past the surface of it. It, it is so deep. I've dedicated my life, and I understand that I'm 40, and I'm not quite up there in age yet, at least uh, in comparison but I've dedicated most of my life to studying this book, and there's still so much that I learn from it. Just the depth and the breadth of God as it leaps off the pages. But what do we do when we feel overwhelmed? Because sometimes you can take all that God has written us, and you can think, well, what do I do with it? How do I, how do I apply it? And sure, you can take one little verse here and focus on that and apply that. That's good. But how do we really get down to the nitty-gritty and to the point of, what am I to do with my life? How am I to live? How am I to know what is most important today as far as God's will is concerned? Well, I want to turn you to God's words through his son, Jesus Christ, who Jesus said that the law and the prophets, all the Old Testament, all the scriptures, everything can be summed up into these two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second, love your neighbor as yourself. Now for me, the first one is easy. Because for anybody who has been touched by the Lord Jesus Christ, who has been born again and made new through Jesus Christ, and has the Holy Spirit within, to me, that it is an easy thing to be filled with His Spirit and to return thanks and to love Him for it. Because you can't help but love Him for what He's done. It's just like when a, a friend or a loved one just, just goes out of their way to bless you, you, you just are just filled with so much love towards that person. And what God has done, sending His Son to die on the cross, so that all who believe, all who confess and believe in him will be saved. When you know that you have the joy of salvation and the hope of a future in heaven, then you are filled with such delight and joy and love for our Savior. So for me, the first has always come easy, and maybe it's not the same with you. I, I believe that God has given me the gift of faith, which means that it's really easy for me to believe in God, and I have no problem with that whatsoever. I've never had a, a point in my faith journey of doubting God. I've just always, faith has come easy to me. Maybe some of you, it's, it's different. Maybe you do wrestle a lot more with your salvation, wrestle a lot more with, with God and why he does things the way he does. And that's okay. That's common. A lot of people do. But as we try to 
try to do that first thing as we respond to God's love for us by loving him back. We also need to remember the second thing. And and the second thing I find is much more difficult. Love your neighbor as yourself. How does that work? How how are we supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves? What does that mean? Does that simply mean that if you are the type of person who just likes to be left alone, then leave everybody else alone. Is that, is that what that means? Does that mean that if you are independent and self-sufficient and you don't rely on the help of anybody else, then that way you just don't help anybody else? That's me loving them as myself. That's how I want to be loved. Or we had a conversation as elders as far as like hospital visits and things, and, and some of us, myself included, when we're going through a difficult, like, medical thing or or just down and depressed, we like to just burrow into a hole and be left alone. We we like to just deal with this on our own. And and we might feel that we have enough of a support group where we don't need people reaching out and asking, how are you doing? And so therefore, if if that's you, is the way to love your neighbor, then by not reaching out in their hour of need. So all these questions swirl through, through our minds, and I must say, I must admit that in ministry, this is probably the area that gives me the most angst because it is in my heart's desire to love and to minister to the body of Christ and to minister to the world. But there's some times where I, I'm just not sure exactly how because I know the way, ways that I like to be loved, but I don't know all the ways that everybody else likes to be loved. And so there's times where I lay awake at night and I think like, am I not doing enough to love my neighbor as myself? Have I not called this person enough? Did I not visit this person? And and the words of Christ haunt me when he talks about when I was in prison, did you visit me? When I was sick, did you did you pray for me? When, when, when I was naked, did you clothe me? When I was hungry, did you feed me? And, and these words haunt me because I think, am I doing these things? Did I miss a hospital visit? Did I miss visiting somebody in prison? Did I not give enough food to the needy? And so these things haunt me. Now, are you in a similar situation where you're constantly wondering, how can I better love my neighbor as myself? Well, I have found peace in the Word of God, and my hope and my goal here this morning is through the Word of God to give you the gift of peace as well. Through the public proclamation of the Word of God, my hope is that if you deal with this angst and anxiety of, of who to help and when and how much, I hope the Word of God here this morning gives you clarity, and gives you peace for your soul. That you can rest assured that you are living according to the will of God, you are doing his work, and you are truly being a light to the world around you. So let's pray. We're going to continue on in our study of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Father, we come before you as only those who can claim to be sinners saved by your grace. Father, we fall way short of your perfect standard. We know this. We feel it. We see it every time that we stumble and fall. We see it every time we relapse on our sin. We see it every time we fail to say or do the right thing. But God, there is a hope and a joy within us. The fact that you restore our soul that you build us up in the faith, that you guide us in all truth. God, you are our King and our Savior, our Lord, and we follow you, only you. So guide us this morning in prayer in, in your truth. Teach us how we ought to love one another, that we ought to serve and commit acts of grace against, one, against or for one another. Help us to be gracious as you have been gracious to us. And teach us now by your word, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so there's no 
mystery that there's a lot of needs in the world. Some needs are caused by natural disasters or a series of unfortunate events, and others exist because people act foolishly until they work themselves into a pickle in life. And regardless of the reason, there is no shortage of needs in the world. And so Paul, as he's writing this letter to the church at Corinth, he's going to be addressing the different needs that the different churches around the Greco-Roman Empire were dealing with. And he begins here in chapter 8, verse 1, where he says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So I want you to notice here that first of all, he's pointing out this church in Macedonia. He wants to use this church as an example of a church or churches that have really done an excellent job of giving themselves to the work of ministry and the work of charity and the work of grace. But before he does this, here in verse 1, he wants them to know about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. All ministries, all ministries are demonstrations of God's grace on earth. Grace is ultimately unmerited favor. God's grace is God's given unmerited favor to us. In other words, we do not deserve the grace of God. We do not deserve to be forgiven. We do not deserve to be used for his purposes. But because of his grace, he came and he died for our sins, even though we don't deserve it. We did not do anything to earn his grace. Yet while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So this is the first thing that Paul wants his readers to understand. That any grace that a ministry or a church demonstrates was first demonstrated to them by Christ. All grace trickles down, rains down from Christ and through the church. And this is why ministry is often referred to as service and why ministers are often referred to as servants because grace is giving something to someone whether it's your time, your effort, your attention, your finances, your help, all these things, even if it's not merited. You, you position yourself as a servant, as a minister. You are there to help those in need, whether they deserve it or not. And frankly, when you look at things, who really deserves anything? I mean, in the grand scheme of things. And if we're going to be fair, if we're going to talk about what we deserve, what we actually deserve is not to be here at all. Like after Adam and Eve, that should have been the end of the human experiment. Because what did God say? If you eat from this tree, you will surely die. But it's because of God's grace that he gave mankind another chance, another opportunity to be redeemed, to be restored, to be saved. And so through that opportunity, God's grace was demonstrated, but through that whole plan of God, here we find ourselves as the church spreading the grace of Christ around to the ends of the earth for that original demonstration of grace. Because that original demonstration of grace was the fact that you have a chance to live. And even though you have a death sentence on you, even though every person is ultimately born with cancer, in other words, if you are not given the remedy to your cancer, you will ultimately die in your sin and you will spend an eternity separated from God in a place called hell. That's the cancer. That's the death. That's the second death. But God gives us the remedy through his son, Jesus Christ. And that is the grace of God. We don't deserve it. If you want to talk about what we deserve, we deserve not to be here at all. None of us. 
but because of his grace, we are. And not only that, but we're also a part of his program. God not only redeems us, but he wants us to be on his team. I mean, how cool is that? He welcomes us into his locker room, into his private chambers, into his meeting room, and he wants us to be a part of his work. I mean, that is incredible grace. He didn't just save us, but he uses us as well. He allows us to be participants. And this is what Paul talks about with the churches of Macedonia, that they experienced the grace of God, and now God was using them to deliver his grace to others as well. And that's how God works. It's a big, huge uh, pyramid scheme. uh, And I I don't want to use the word scheme, but you know what I'm saying. It's a pay-it-forward gospel grace, totally free, because he paid it all. And Macedonia, the churches in Macedonia were part of that. Um, I do have a map up here. When we talk about the churches of Macedonia, he uses them as an example of churches who are doing it right. And the best known churches in Macedonia were the churches at Philippi, if you look up north there. And if you notice where Corinth is, this is where this letter was sent to. So up above Achaia and into Macedonia, you have these three churches which are prominent and which are referenced throughout Scripture. You have Philippi, you have Thessalonica, which those two places Paul also wrote letters to, which are books in our Bible. You have the letter to the Philippians, and then you have the letter to the Thessalonians. There is no letter to the Bereans, but the Bereans are mentioned in Acts as those who just studied over the Word of God, testing to see if things were true. They were very diligent studiers of the Word of God. One thing Paul says is that all of these areas, all these cities, were under great affliction as they received the Scripture. Now, this could have been some kind of a famine, some kind of a drought. Many historians think that that's, that was the case, is that they were dealing with a severe famine, so therefore many of them were poor and were fighting for scraps. Um, perhaps maybe their, their, governor, uh, their government banned gas stoves. I don't know, and they were scrambling for things. They had an egg shortage. I don't know. And so they were dealing with all this great affliction, Way, way worse than we've ever seen. But yet they received the gospel and they received it with great joy. Consider uh, what Paul wrote to the Philippians in Philippians 1, 29 through 30. It says, It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So Paul, he could relate to the Philippians and the Philippians could relate to him because they dealt with very similar struggles and afflictions. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.6, you receive the word in much affliction. And then Acts 17 talks about the reference of his work there with the Bereans. And so what Paul wants to commend them for is their generosity because despite their affliction, despite their poverty, These churches gained a reputation of great generosity and they became a blessing to all that they ministered to. Paul lists some of the components of their gracious ministry. First of all, they ministered with abundant joy. Now, abundant joy isn't merely, I'm just happy to be here. That's not abundant joy. Now, sometimes you fellowship with people who are just like, I'm just happy to be here. And that's good. I'm glad you're happy to be here. I'm glad you're not here begrudgingly. I'm glad there is a level of joy there that you're just happy that God allowed you to wake up this morning and you're just, you know, you're going with the status quo and you're just, I'm just happy to be alive. I'm happy to be here. Great. We're happy you're here too. But abundant joy is an attitude of there's nowhere else I would rather be and while we're here, let's sing merry songs together. And let's give glory to God. And let's shower each other with the praises of the Lord. That's abundant joy. Not just I'm happy to be here. 
but a visible, abundant joy. Because you know what? Joy is not happiness. That's not the same thing. Joy is when you're going through a conflict, you can still say, it is well with my soul. Internally, there's that, there's that feeling of everything is okay because God's got me right in his hand. And, and no height, nor depth, nor angels, nor demons, nor anything in all creation can remove us from God's hand and from his love. It's that just steadfast, it is well with my soul. But it doesn't always translate to the face. You, you can be joyful with a straight face. It's true. You can even be joyful through tears. It's true. Abundant joy, though, is when that it is well with my soul just emits from your, your whole being, and you are just rejoicing, singing from the mountaintops, and, and you are just shining bright like a lighthouse for all to see. So the Macedonian churches had this abundant joy despite the fact that they were going through severe affliction. Now, what a ministry that is to the world. Especially if you go out into the world and you talk to people who are constantly looking at the news cycle, constantly depressed, constantly, oh, did you see that? Did you see that? Oh, the world's falling apart. It's going to hell in a handbasket, and everybody's freaking out. But here you are, Joe Christian, with this abundant joy, Stepping out in the front door. Isn't this a beautiful day? This is good. Amen? I'm glad you responded that way. That's good. I can see your abundant joy. But there, you see such people. Sometimes I'll go into the coffee shop early in the morning, and there's good old boys sitting there drinking, talking about all the world's problems. And one time I came in, I just wanted to see how they're doing. I said, hey, man, God is good, right? And they kind of looked at me. All right. <laughs> okay, no joy there. But as believers, we should be that source of joy. And it's not always going to be abundant. But when it is, that's special. And that's ministering to other people. It's contagious. People like to say it's contagious joy. And that's exactly right. And so the Macedonian church was blessing people with their constant abundant joy despite their situation. But then they also graced other people with a wealth of generosity. Now, the Greek word used here indicates a sincerity of heart. They're just praising the Lord. Let's give glory. So the word here, wealth of generosity, indicates a sincerity of heart. Now, the call to serve is not just about doing tasks, doing righteous tasks. It's about where is your heart as you're doing the tasks? Is your heart sincere? Do you have a, a genuine desire to bless other people? Or is it simply like, well, I love the Lord, so I better be obedient. Now, obedience is good. But when you're obedient because you want to, because you want to serve the Lord and you're happy to do it and there's nowhere else you'd rather be, that's something else entirely. Because you can tell when somebody is just being obedient to their task and their heart's not really in it. They're just checking off a box, so to speak. Consider, if you will, a waiter. So if you go uh, to a restaurant and you can tell somebody's just having a, a horrible day, and they're just kind of there because they have to be. They have to pay their bills. Uh, what are you going to have? They just don't really care about really serving you. And, and did you know that the word deacon, which we use in, in Scripture, ultimately the Greek word means servant or waiter, somebody who is serving or weighing upon somebody's temporal needs. And so in, in the same way, if you have a waiter who is not really genuine in their desire to serve you a meal, you feel that. And it, it changes your experience, doesn't it? It changes your attitude towards the place you're going to eat at. Now, that's just a restaurant, but imagine gospel work. Imagine ministry. Imagine if you're coming to share the gospel with somebody and you act like you're doing it because you have to, not because you want to. People can pick up on that. And it changes the experience. 
and it changes their attitude towards the gospel and towards the church, towards ministry, towards God. So the Macedonian churches, they were not only doing these acts of service and righteousness, but they were doing it with a smile, service with a smile. I worked in retail for 10 years, and there's times where I did not want to help people. I wanted to just go grab one of those little scanners and go just scan products all day. I didn't want to talk to a single person. I was having a bad day, whatever it was. But you know what? What really turned me around was when you help somebody and, and, you, and you do it well and you make their day, that just builds you up. And you learn the value of serving people. Because I think sometimes until we find the value of doing it or we see the value of it play out, sometimes we're not motivated to do it because we don't know how good it feels to make somebody's day. How good it feels like if, if somebody is in trouble to come and to help them. The way you feel after that, the way you see that you're helping, you see the good that it's doing, you see the value of it, and then suddenly your heart starts to change to where it truly is a sincere act of service because you want to and because you know the value of it. The Macedonian churches knew the value of their servitude. And you know what? Sometimes it does start with obedience. Sometimes you do just have to, even if you don't want to, step into it and do it, and then God shows you the value, and suddenly your heart is changing as well. I've seen this happen in ministry. Does anybody love to go to the hospital? Very few people do, and the ones that do become nurses or doctors. But the rest of us, if somebody is sick, that's not the way I want to spend my evening or afternoon. I'd much rather spend it in their home or having fun or doing something great, but going into a, a hospital that smells constantly like sterilizer and people in masks running around with, with gloves and just people dying over here and families crying over there. It's, it's just a, it's a difficult place to be. I remember early on in ministry, it was very intimidating to me to go into hospitals and to visit people. But I knew, according to the Scripture, Christ's words that haunted me when I was sick, did you visit me? I was obedient to it, the fact that I didn't want to. But then when you go and you sit there and you see what a joy it is for people to have company and a visitor and somebody who cares, when you sit there holding their hand as they're breathing their last breath, you see the value. And you suddenly think about your own life too. You think, you're able to empathize and think, yeah, when I'm dying or when I'm really sick, it'd be great to have a kind-souled person there with me, reading me scripture, praying with me, holding my hand. And then once you see that value, you're motivated and it's sincere and it's generous. And so the Macedonian church was doing this well. Also, they gave beyond their means. And Paul says they were unprompted or they gave according to their own accord. And this could be referring to giving of, of time or giving of self, but I think specifically based off of the context he's talking about, they gave financially or they gave materially, the material needs of the church or the people who were in need. And this also refers to the general tithes and offerings, but it also refers to the above and beyonds. So when you're in a local congregation, as you tithe each week or each month or however it is you have that planned out, as you're giving, you're giving towards the local mission or the local service of the church. But beyond that, we know that sometimes there's even greater measures of need across the world or even locally times where we want to give above and beyond what we give normally, where there might be a, a flood or some kind of tragedy or some kind of war or something going on where you just know that I, I have extra, I should give because these people don't even have a home. These people are refugees and they're on the run and, and they need help. 
I mean, I, I, I used to get caught up in the whole political debate about refugees and stuff and borders and all that kind of stuff. And then I, I started thinking about the people, you know, because God cares about the people. It's the people who are made in his image. The kingdoms of man will fall in the end, but it's the people we're called to minister to. And regardless of the politics surrounding the refugee situations, our heart as a church should be about the people. Because let's say there are a large group of refugees who are coming to cause trouble. What better way to stop that trouble than to introduce the gospel so that they're born again? It's the whole Apostle Paul situation. The Apostle Paul was persecuting the church, dragging people out of the church, stoning them, persecuting them. Well, what changed that? Christ. Christ changed that. In fact, he, he turned Paul into one of the most effective ministers in the first century for the gospel. Total reversal. And so my mind is, even if people are wanting to cause trouble, we should contribute to the ministry work that will introduce them to the gospel so that they can be saved and that so they can, they can be changed. That's the work of the church. You let politicians be politicians. The church needs to be the church. We are here to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth so that people might believe. And so the Macedonian churches, they, they gave, they contributed financially to these different areas and different places of need as the church made it known. Consider the poor widow who cheerfully gave out of, out of her poverty. She is much like the Macedonian churches who had very little. Mark 12, 41, 44 says, And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. She gave more money, or she gave more, not in volume of money, but in meaning of giving. The meaning of what it means to give. The heart behind giving. God does not care how much money you have. God cares where your heart as, is as you're giving. Where is your heart as you give? You might give thousands and thousands of dollars to, to needs, but if your heart is not in the right place, it really doesn't matter. Truly, to God. What God is looking for is your heart. Where is your heart at as you are giving to the needs of others the churches of Macedonia had the heart of this poor widow. They were giving out of their poverty. And you know what? If you ever go on a mission trip, if you ever go to a poor district, some, some of these uh, situations, some of these believers are way more charitable, way more overflowing with joy than districts and people who have a lot. It's true. Why is that? because they have nowhere else to go but the Lord. They lean on and rely on the Lord far more than those who have a lot. And so it's not so much a bad thing to lose our riches for the work of the Lord because it makes us rely on him even more. And also he says they were desperate to serve the saints. And even though they were experiencing great affliction and could use some help themselves, they were desperate to help. They begged Paul, let us be a part of the, of the relief fund or the relief effort of these people over here. Well, you don't have much. Yes, but what we do have, we really want to give. So please, let us be a part of this giving. That was their heart. That was their attitude. Consider Philippians 4, 15 through 18. It says, you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, 
having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So he ends this section by saying they gave first to the Lord, second to the Lord's will. Again, the Bible calls us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the way we do that is through general tithes and offerings. We demonstrate that everything that we have is because God has given it to us. And therefore, we give a portion of it back. And this, this dates all the way back to the very beginning. Cain and Abel, the big divide that happened there was over tithes and offerings to the Lord. And so this is something that is pleasing to God. This is something that is good for you to let go, to let loose of earthly treasures and to acknowledge the fact that you have any earthly treasures at all because he gives it to you. So they gave to God generously, but they also gave to those in need as well, second to the Lord's will or to the Lord's work, to advance God's work. Next section, we move into verse 6. Paul continues, Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. So Titus was an understudy or a pupil of Paul, and he, if, if you're unaware, has a book titled Titus as well in the, in the scriptures. Uh, Paul would oftentimes dispatch Titus to take care of, of big needs and small needs, according to the church. In the beginning of Titus, Titus 1.5, Paul writes, I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So they were having an elder problem in Crete. The church was kind of this organism without any kind of leadership. And so what did Paul do? He said, this is a, a church that is going to fall apart. If this church does not have elders, if it does not have leaders or leadership structure, it is going to fall apart. So Titus, I need you to go there, and I need you to stay there until elders are appointed. And so that was one example, but also it seems that he sent Titus to the ch church at Corinth as well to help them with their issues. And to know about their issues, all you have to do is read 1 Corinthians. We went through that. We went through a lot of the problems that they have, similar problems that you and I might have or Western churches might have. And so Titus was sent to help resolve some of these issues. And Titus, in his work, he became a blessing. He became a blessing because he was serving in the ways that we already mentioned. He had abundant joy. He was demonstrating a wealth of generosity. He gave beyond his own means, and he was desperate to serve the Corinthian church. Paul talks about this in terms of an act of grace. Now again, where does grace come from? Grace comes from God. Therefore, all ministry work is a response to God's grace that was already given. If you have grace in your heart, it's probably be because you've received a lot of grace yourself. Those who have been given much oftentimes forgive much. And so if, if you have a, a large measure of grace, oftentimes you give a large measure of grace. And in this way, Paul, Titus, all those who were serving and helping the needs of the Corinthian church, he says that they were excelling in everything. And actually, the, the ESV translation here might give the wrong impression with that word excelling, indicating that, that perhaps it was the Corinthian church that was excelling at these things, when really a better translation would be abounding. They, they were abounding because they were being graced by Paul and Titus, through the work of faith, speech, knowledge, earnestness, and love. And when you think about faith, when you think about speech and knowledge, what Paul and Titus had to offer was preaching the gospel, preaching the truth, teaching them the truth of God, correcting them 
training them. If you've ever, ever been in the business of teaching, you know that you have to be patiently enduring with sometimes stupid people. Sometimes people who are very stubborn. Sometimes people you have to be long-suffering with. And some people who just don't get it, and you have to take the time and patience to teach them the Word of God. Some people pick it up really quick. Some people know it, but don't follow it. And so, therefore, this act of service is truly important to the church and something that Paul and Titus had to do very patiently with the church at Corinth. Again, as you read some of the things that they did, the fact that Paul stuck with them is a true act of love. To stick with people who are not getting it, who are coming up with their own ideas about it, that took a great act of love. And what Paul is saying, if Corinthians experienced this from them, that they should then reciprocate it, not just back to them, but also to others. There should be some reciprocating involved when grace is shown. Grace should be returned. Grace should be reciprocated. And in that way, we are all ministering to each other. The last section we're going to cover today is verses 9 through 10, where then Paul turns to the generosity of Jesus. Verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. So when it comes to models of acts of grace, obviously the best model is Christ. And so when you defer or refer to Jesus as the model of what you're talking about, that's when you're pulling out all the stops. That's, you're pulling out the big guns. Okay, here's Christ. This is the top model of what you should be doing in your life. To live as Christ, to be as Christ, to speak as Christ, to do as Christ. Now we can look to Paul. We can look to Titus. We can look to the churches of Macedonia. We could even look to the church at Corinth. But ultimately, we should be looking to Christ who perfectly did everything, who knew no sin, who did perfect ministry on earth. And so Paul, he points to Christ and his example of grace. Consider what he wrote to the church at Philippi. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." So Jesus emptied himself. He made himself poor. Now, is Paul talking about riches, like finances, like money? I mean, did Jesus have a big bank account? Well, he was a carpenter. Any of you here who are carpenters or in the trades know that your bank account isn't endless. Jesus emptied himself of the riches of his kingship where he should be served he forfeited his kingship to be one who serves others he made himself poor in spirit humble in spirit why so that others might become rich this was his love. This was his servant heart to become poor so that others become rich. And this principle can sometimes be demonstrated through our finances. It can. But the deeper meaning here that Paul is talking is the superior riches of life that Christ provided through his example and sacrifice. 
Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So in other words, if you want to be rich, then do good. If you want to be rich, be rich in good works. If you want to be rich, be generous and ready to share. That is true riches. If you want to be rich in ministry, have strong faith in the Lord. Speak of His truth. Dig into the knowledge and the truth of God and share it with others. Correct falsehood. Be earnest in your desire to serve, not out of obligation or duty, but because you love the Lord and because you see the value in serving other people and you desire to do that above all else. And my friends, if you pray for that, he will give it to you. If you are lacking earnestness in ministry work, get on your knees and ask God, God, make me want to do this. I want to serve you, but I'm struggling right now. Lord, help me to love other people as you love them. And also to have that abundant joy. That's rich. You cannot buy abundant joy with monetary finances. That is a richness that only God can provide. To be sincere in your heart, to give beyond what you actually have, that requires a level of faith, just a great, rich level of faith. We should desire to be rich spiritually and to give, give others. Sometimes that includes money, but most of the time, it just includes giving of yourself and what Christ is in yourself. We're going to stop right there, but I want to um, just briefly read verses 11 through 15, which we're going to cover next week, but it's, it's part of the context, so I want you to hear this before we get to next week. Paul continues in verse 11, So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. So the reason why I want to wait till next week to talk about that is there's a lot to unpack in that. And I think there's a lot of polarized ideas about socioeconomics when it comes to uh, how the church ought to operate and how ministry ought to operate. You hear some people make the claim that Jesus was a socialist or the church should be a socialist. And you have some people say, no, capitalism is a greater way to love people because it gives you more abundance. Well, I'm here to tell you that Jesus was neither a socialist nor a capitalist. Jesus Christ is the Lord, and his kingdom is greater than any of these. And so as believers, I really want us next week to come back and look at exactly how Christ has set up the socioeconomics of the church and how we ought to operate, how we ought to give, how we ought to share because, again, it is far better than anything you're going to find in this world. And I really want to make sure that we hit that topic hard and we identify exactly how does Christ's kingdom work. But until then, my friends, I want to encourage you this week. True riches are found in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you want to be really rich in this life, I encourage you to step out in faith, to find the needs of your neighbors, and even if you don't want to, to step out in obedience and to share with them, first and foremost, the gospel of Jesus Christ, but also meet their need. If they don't have food, 
find a way to feed them, and with that, share with them the bread of life, which is Christ. If there are those who don't have enough clothes, then find a way, such as my, my wife has, to do like a, a closet, a Clayton closet, to share clothes, to give clothes, to help. And in that way, you will find how people can be clothed in Christ and share that gospel. If there's somebody you know who's in prison, maybe they're rotting there for a good reason. Maybe they did, they did something truly egregious, truly heinous. But do you know them? Do you have a connection with them? I guarantee you, they have a lot of time to think while they're in prison. And there's probably a Gideon Bible somewhere in their cell. And they're probably sitting there thinking a lot about their life and about God. And all they need is for a faithful servant of his to come and to pay them a visit, somebody who they would not expect, and you share with them the love of Christ. My friends, I want to encourage you, if you struggle with serving and loving your neighbor, pray Pray that God will give you the desire to do it and step out in boldness and faith when those opportunities present themselves. So why don't we take this time to pray to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, on behalf of all those who are here, my brothers and sisters in Christ, those who are seeking, I ask God that you would plant inside of our hearts a true, genuine desire like Christ to love the world and to do acts of grace. God, and may these acts of grace not just be some task that we feel good about completing, but may we see with our own eyes the way that your grace just flows out into this world, the way that people who don't deserve grace feel it, and as they receive you as their Lord and Savior, God, we just ask that you would, your kingdom would come, your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we want your will, and we know that your will is to love our neighbor. So help us to do it better. And let it start here. Help us to love each other better in all that we do. Father, I want to pray for the food we're about to eat and the fellowship we're about to have. God, may you bring up good topics of conversation. May we not just talk about the weather, God, but guide us in deep conversation that really hits the heart of our lives and what we're going through. And Father, we just ask for growth and sanctification. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.